Well, the Ever Given might be free, but are we? Backed up ships are going to clog the whole system for a great deal of time. So is the supply chain internationally broken? Or are the links just a little weaker than we want them to be? Let's talk about it today with this edition of Jaws Bites. Welcome again, everybody. This is Chris Joslin with The Chris Joslin Show in another edition of Jaws Bites. I, I, as I mentioned a moment ago, we'll be talking a little bit about the Ever Given again. We've said some stuff about that in a previous podcast, but I thought it's re- really important to revisit this subject and, and talk a little bit more in depth about not the situation there necessarily, but how it has impacted the fluidity and expose the fragility of really our international supply chain. Well, I think today is a good day to kind of revisit a little bit on the Suez Canal uh, really disaster that occurred over the course of the last couple weeks and its implication for supply chain in general and what it tells us really about the overall fragility of the supply chain. Now, this is on an international level, but it is a, a a demonstration, if you will, of something more uh, systemic in the localized or regionalized supply chains that are out there right now. Uh, you know, I just as an anecdote along these lines, I, I think that if anyone has ever lived in a place that is growing, and I grew up in Michigan. So seeing a new house go up was, at the time, kind of a, a novelty because there were probably, during the time I lived there, more people leaving the state of Michigan in the area I was in than going into Michigan. But when I lived in Arizona and then in California, there's always somebody building something, doing something, infrastructurally, housing, uh, neighborhoods, etc. And one of the things that, that I took note of right away is that the uh, planning, city planning, county planning, state planning, always seem to be behind the curve in terms of the growth. And I, I've always wondered, and I don't have any evidence one way or another about this, but I've always wondered if that's a, a function of, of understanding that you're always one step behind because you're, you're looking to... to uh, fill a void just behind the rate of, of growth or if somebody has the foresight to plan ahead for what the potential of growth is but can't get the budgets through to make something like that happen I mean I, I live right now off the I-15 corridor in northern San Diego and there was a time not so long ago that there were two or three less lanes to that trek that, that cities like Temecula in between San Diego and the Inland Empire and in the Los Angeles area was less frequented, had less growth occurring. Uh, I mean, Temecula was a bedroom town, as they say, a weekend uh, uh, bed and breakfast kind of place, place to go and, 
and taste some wine and, and and have a good weekend or take a balloon ride, things like that. And now it's a it's a mecca. I mean, it's a it's a huge city now. And so these things change, but the infrastructure around them doesn't uh, coincide with the right speed to get those things accomplished in a in a in the right amount of time. And I think I think that when you look at what happens in somewhere like the Suez Canal. You know, a lot of people are worried about the Panama Canal now because of this, and I, I don't think the same. There's a lot of differences between the two, the two places, and in, in how they work things, and, and you know that one is kind of mandated, at least in part, by the rise of tides and the sea levels, and the Panama Canal is more of a freshwater uh, canal through a bunch of lake locks, and you know, it, it just is handled much, much differently. Though there are always things that can happen. And maintaining the draft underneath the the ships that go through there, the size of the ships, the Suez Canal can be much larger than the Panama Canal, etc. But it it really speaks more to how we we line up things and we constrain our infrastructure in a way to accommodate the best case scenario of things that happen. And when some outlier occurs, like what happened in the Suez Canal with the Ever Given on March 23rd, I believe it was, that we have very little answer to this except, you know, pushing the, you know, alarm button, the emergency button, and and bringing all, uh, all companies to bear on solving a problem of, of immediate and ultimate urgency. And as I've said in previous podcasts, this. This kind of scenario is, it's incalculable that it happened. There's a lot of different things that, that are being brought up that, as to why it may have happened. And, and certainly some of the pictures I'm showing you, like right now, uh, of the thing sideways in the canal and, and how the width of the ship at almost 200 feet, the depth at 51 under the water when it's loaded like this, and the canal only being 800 and something feet wide, depth of 78 at the most is is a recipe for a challenge at times most of the time it's no big deal at all but these things sit way way out of the water they're huge they're eight stories out of the water and they they create if there's any kind of wind or anything it creates it creates a situation where momentum exceeds your capacity to adjust to certain challenges that occur with these ships so having having said that all that is inconsequential for what we're, what I'm, what I'm trying to get across today, and that, and that's that. The system is too fragile. Our network, transportation network, is impacted too heavily by these outlying situations that occur. So the question becomes: Is do we have the wherewithal with as an industry to add uh, the enough value to these infrastructural projects to get something done. And that's a debate that's going on in the United States right now in Congress with this $2 trillion infrastructural uh, program that's being brought forth by the Biden administration. Now, I've got my personal opinion that almost anything brought forward by the House, no matter whose party you're talking about, usually has way too much in it that has nothing to do with the kind of infrastructure that is necessary, the kind of dictate that the laws are trying to produce in the first place, because part of part of the the art of of the possible, as Biden put it the other day in his his press conference, part of that art is to throw everything at the wall 
and then just hope to see what sticks depending on what party you're, you're affiliated with. That's the way our, our construct works now. It's tilting in one direction, a pendulum's back another. But all of that to say that at the, at the, the crux of what we're talking about, something has to get done still. Something has to be achieved to get our world to follow some kind of, um, not path of least resistance, because that gives, gives you the wrong impression. It has to accommodate our ability as a world to come together and share services and products in a way that continues to economically impact positively the countries around us. And this, this thing couldn't have happened at a worse time because there were you know, hundreds of, of container ships behind this 20,000 TEU ships sitting in the harbor there or sitting sideways in the canal. And uh, frankly, they did an amazing job using tugboats and dredges and things like that, as you can see in this picture, um, to manage to get this thing floated again. And, it, you know, from an outsider's point of view, you look at this thing and you go, There's, this, this can't be this bad. But then you see, if you take a look at, at this little uh, photoshopped snapshot of what this steamship line would look like sitting in Central Park, you can get an idea and a perspective of the scope of something like this. And I, I think that in part is what we're trying to do with these podcasts anyway, is to give people an idea of these, you know, nobody thinks about these container ships in, in your daily life. They know stuff comes into harbors. They know stuff gets off. They know it gets to your store somehow. But then seeing something like this that is fully packed with merchandise, there could be empties in here, but most of this is merchandise of, of all kinds going places in the primary channel of distribution from China to, to uh, Europe is incalculable. And, and people don't think about the scope of the situation like this. So the question becomes is, what do we do about it? Do we just print out money and throw it at it like what is being you know, forwarded in, in Congress right now? I don't know if that's the answer. I, I think the answer is probably, as most things should be, a combination and a collaboration between the public space in the private space, in governments, in private industry. These steamship lines make billions and billions of dollars a year. They adjust their rates and their quotations and their, their uh, routes and transit flows and things all the time depending on supply and demand economics. And if, the, if, if we were able to create a way to address future spend, R&D, if you will, in a more concise way to facilitate these projects that are good for all. It can't be up to Egypt to do everything about the Suez Canal, but it is up to Egypt if they're the only ones getting the, the revenue from, from handling this, which is a multi-billion dollar operation per year to begin with. So I don't have an answer for that today, but I just wanted to address this real poignantly that our supply chain is not broken. Let me say that again. It's not broken. But it is very weak in some links. And it only that weakness is only demonstrated when these terrible occurrences happen. When something out of the norm 
an outlier, if you will, as I, as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, impacts something like this. And it, we need to stop treating our supply chain like it's uh, fallible, but it's just life, just kind of the way it is. We've got to look at things in a constructive way. We've got to We've got to do problem solving. We've got to do, as a lot of people like to say today, we've got to have a root analysis point of view on situations like this to determine the next steps to make things more viable, to, to have them have more continuity with what, with what the needs are for the industry as a whole. Because this impact will take literally months and months and months to sort itself out. You're going to have ports backed up. You're going to have supply chain lines backed up, which means raw materials for manufacturing of goods. Not alone, this is not just finished goods going places that aren't going to that are going to impact the amount on the store shelf. That's part of it, but this also the supply chain is cradle to grave. It's from raw materials to finished goods, and these things are mixed together in a complex way. That when something like this occurs, it is uh, impacted greatly. And, uh, you know, I'm sure there will be lawsuits around this. There will be analysis done for this. There will be all kinds of suggestions as to what to do to, to manage situations like this in the future. And you may remember from a previous co- podcast, I, I, I noted that how, you know, stoplights never go up places until somebody dies. Well, this is one of those kind of moments. This, this was uh, 1886, I believe, is when... The Suez Canal was first put into usage. Now, it's changed a lot since then, but obviously not enough to accommodate the super vessels that are out there that have, I think the largest vessel has approximately a 22,000 TEU capacity capability. Now, those don't go through the Panama Canal, but they certainly go through the Suez Canal. And the Suez Canal is also uh, heavy on the commodity side, uh, petroleum, things like that. And so there, there's a lot of differences, by the way. I think in new routes are coming up every day. The fact that the, there's a lot of melt up in the, the, the polar ice caps has has facilitated a new route from Asia to Europe that wasn't used much in the past because of the ice blockage. So things are dynamic. Things are fluid. Things change all the time. But we need to be prepared for things like this. That doesn't mean we have all the answers. That doesn't mean we our contingencies will solve every problem. But it does mean that we're that we're understanding of the potential pitfalls that can occur uh, when everything goes right and things are smooth and there's no pandemics and we have a fluid network and the capacity of what we need is in the right places at the right time. The transportation industry in general, the supply chain industry, is a remarkable remarkable thing both worldwide regional etc but my urgency for saying something like this is the discussions are starting to be had but they need to be had with with more than just platitudes this this can't be something that we just have a uh, a think tank work on and come up with white papers that never get implemented. I, I moved into a, an office back in the early 90s in near Miramar Air Force Base. And 
in San Diego is along a frontage road to the to the actually I think it was a Marine Air Station at the time. And I'll never forget it because there was a bunch of old furniture in there and in one of the desk drawers there was a white paper that a company had put together in the early sixties. Yeah, 1960s. This is this was in the 90s, so this was you know 35 years after the fact that this white paper was put together, and it was it was a dedicated proposal with apparently legs at the time because it was getting consi- serious consideration to put a new airport in San Diego at the location of the Miramar uh, or the, the Marine Air Station that was there. And if, if you've ever flown into San Diego, it's considered one of the top 10 most dangerous airports to fly into. I've been in a million times, so I don't feel that way. It's just one of those things on the Internet you can, you can look at. But it's because there's only one, one runway, and it flies over a city. And it's, it's just not conducive. But it's still, and it's growing. They're, they're building onto it now. They're, they're putting more places to park and doing a lot of things like that. But over the years, there have been uh, attempts to address accommodating a, a much larger area because San Diego is, is composes of this relatively large metropolitan area, but it also has a large contingent of people from south of the border that utilize that airport. Now, the Tijuana Airport is used quite a lot now as well. But my, my point is the same. These white papers, these contingency plans, these things can be put into place for all kinds of things that can come up. And believe me, our imagination as human beings will come up with every contingency possible from, you know, pandemics that can occur to I'm sure that if you dig around, you can find a white paper written 20 years ago about what we should do about the potential of a vessel getting stuck in in the canal. We need to stop just writing white papers. We need to actually implement and take action, even if it's a stair-step approach over multiple years, to finance the ability to keep things ahead of the game. When you drive into some cities that are growing like crazy and you see them putting in roadways in concentric circles around a city that they know is going to be twice as large in a few years, that's true city planning. When you see a city that you go into and it's growing like crazy and they're not doing anything about the roads, you know they have plans for it and they just can't figure out a way to get it through their budgetary constraints. So my, uh, my advice is let's take steps, even if they're baby steps, to get some of this done in advance. Because a, a vessel getting stuck in the harbor with you know, uh, about 130 vessels that were on the way to the canal with a couple hundred already behind this um, ship is disaster. It was $400 million, not a day, not a week, $400 million financial impact per hour that it was there. Now, I haven't done the math on that, but you're certainly welcome to. I think it was the 23rd that this started. It just freed up two days ago. And today's April 1st. So this is not an April Fool's joke. But anyway, I, I just wanted to get that out there and give you another little Jaws bite, uh, maybe a little mini bite on this, this scenario. 
But please, as always, be part of the community. Jump on to ilovelogistics.com. Uh, give us your input on this. You know, grab the podcast, listen to it on Spotify. It'll be on Apple um, Podcasts soon, several other podcasts. Give us a five-star review on that. Join the conversation because this stuff is important to what all of us do every day. And you might, might not feel the impact all the time or might, might not recognize where the impact of these things occur, but they occur. <clears throat> and this is just a a big blemish that is there for everybody to see because it made international news. But there are like things that happen all the time. Every time there's a, rail, a derailment, every time there's uh, accidents on the highway from trucks, every time there's a port congestion or a, a labor uh, conflict that clogs up part of our system, the fluidity and the, the fragility of our system is impacted. So what we need to do is start thinking differently about this. And that doesn't come from me. That comes from you. That comes from all of us putting our heads together in the transportation community, making sure that this is of import to the general populace because that's the only way to get regulations and things done properly. It's not just through lobbying. It's through the impact of of the general population understanding that things need to be done differently. So help us do just that. Be part of the team. Be part of the circle. Go to ilevellogistics.com. Subscribe. Be part of the insider group. There will be, there'll be some additional content about this exclusively for those that, that sign up on our, on our website. Uh, again, go see the podcast. Go to the YouTube channel. Subscribe. Like it. That, that's how we get this thing out there into the public uh, infosphere and get real change to start occurring. So thanks again for joining me for this edition of Jaws Bites.